Awesome. Hello and uh, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining. Uh, my name is Rohini Gonkar. I am part of the Developer Advocate team at AWS and I will be the moderator for today's panel discussion um, on the ethics of artificial intelligence. So nowadays it's difficult to ignore the progress of AI towards different fields from you see autonomous vehicles to user behavior predictions and or even biopharma. But on the other side, the growing sophistication and omnipresence of AI applications in our lives has also raised a number of ethical concerns. So today we will hear opinions from our esteemed speakers on the importance of implementing ethical practices when it comes to AI. But before that, uh, I would request the speakers to introduce themselves. And uh, let's start with you, Jayesh. Sure. Uh, hello, guys. Most of the attendees probably know me. I, I organize AWS user group Pune over here. Uh, I wo work around AI. I do consultancies around cloud and AI platforms. Uh, and this is this is an interesting topic for me as well, uh, considering the ethics of AI and it might be it, it might change some of the things in the future. So uh, it's 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 nice to be here. Awesome. Who wants to go next? Do I'm gonna go next or yes, please do. Sure, sure. All right, awesome. Uh, my name is Scott Haynes. I'm a senior principal software engineer at Twilio. Um, it's a cloud communications company, and um, you know, uh, if people have seen it or heard of it before, it's most likely probably behind the scenes in some of the applications that you use, um, like an Uber or Lyft or anything like that. Um, so I've been working in more or less like in the field of like kind of collaborative filtering um, and um, like statistical AI for about nine years now, um, and I work on the voice insights team at Twilio, making sure that our voice sounds good. Awesome. Uh, Lizzie, you want to go next? Yeah, uh, I'm Lizzie. I'm a developer evangelist at Twilio, focusing on uh, educating developers and making demos. And I've been playing a lot with TensorFlow recently. Very fun. Very fun. And I guess I'm last in the circle. So uh, hey, everyone. My name is Nick Walsh. I'm a developer advocate at Amazon Web Services. I do a lot with AI and machine learning services here and help customers get that into action. Um, I think sort of one of my most favorite things uh, to do in the space of AI and ML is, is help to make this actionable for customers. I know a lot of people have a lot of greenfield sort of ideas of what AI can be, and those are very exciting to talk about. Um, but I think that uh, much in the way of the work that uh, you know some of the other panelists have done here, uh, I think there's a lot to be done with, with traditional statistical methods and mo modeling. Um, so excited to share a little bit of the stories there and uh, sort of the intersection of that and ethics, which I think is sort of the topic of today. So thanks. Awesome. So thanks thanks for the introduction. Um, so let's begin with the topic itself. Uh, so what are your personal opinions on the fairness and the bias of the AI systems? Anyone uh, who would like to start? Happy to kick things off. So. Um, yeah, I mean, let, let's start with with sort of a primer, right? If we want to have a discussion, it probably makes sense to define some terms here. Um, so, so fairness, bias, uh, AI. I mean, this is the start. So we'll we'll start super high level, right? AI being any sort of uh, obviously standing for artificial intelligence, but any sort of system by which um, there are there is some sort of automated reasoning for the system to behave conditionally. I think that's that's sort of a really good uh, baseline. If anyone feels uh, you know, differently, feel free to correct me, but that's sort of the, the superset, things like machine learning and things like deep learning become subsets of that in the way in which um, we decide how those systems should make their decisions is another thing. But 
when it comes to bias and um, fairness, I guess we'll start with bias. Um, bias would be that those uh, decisions that the system makes would be um, either like unequitable or or not equal to the way and or not exhibiting a distribution in a way that we would expect them to or that we would want them to. I think that's, you know, kind of ties into fairness, but does anyone have any sort of like other ways they want to sort of lay the groundwork there? Like yeah. equitability or like expectation versus reality, I think is a really big one that comes in when we talk about yeah. um, bias. If, um, is it okay if I go? Yeah, totally. Cool. Um, so I think, I mean, like along the same lines of like the bias, uh, bias and the fairness, um, you know, you're basically kind of pointing out, um, you know, it's basically test sets and training sets. And if you have training sets where you're basically teaching a system to think like a human or to make a decision on behalf of a human, a lot of times that comes down to the set of data that you train it with. Um, so, if, you know, people read the news, they read, you know, you read a lot about like artificial intelligence, um, like with recruiting. And, you know, just by removing a name, you know, which ungenders like the underlying, you know, uh, potential candidate for a company, um, a lot of actual things happen there where people actually, you know, make it through a phone interview, you know, phone screening, or whatever else where that name might have just been like, well, you know, we trained most of our, you know, system, with, you know, with male names. This is a female name. For some reason, we see that we have, you know, statistically more chance of actually hiring somebody and keeping them for two years if it's a male. Therefore, we're going to basically discriminate. And I think with that, like, there's a lot of those kind of notions where you see it all over the place, like from credit scores, um, you know, really, you name it, most likely there's some kind of like bias there. And a lot of times it's explicit or implicit. And a lot of people don't even realize that they're biased until someone calls them out on it. And then I think that, you know, this will lead into a lot of the other discussions. But I think about that. It's like, how do you create like a system um, which acts like a person you'd want to be a friend with? You know, is it fair? Is it kind? Um, does it support you? You know, I guess it depends on if you're a good person, too. But, you know, can you create something that's, you know, good for humanity? Yeah. I think oh, sorry. Are you done? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, no worries. I think fairness is tough to, I guess, measure. When fairness is, can be like a social construct, like there can be multiple, I think, definitions. Like fairness in treatment is not necessarily fairness in outcome, per se. If we're looking at, say, the college admissions process, fairness in treatment would be making it race blind like just looking at like a certain test score, but fairness and outcome would mean like adjusting the decision-making to only like look at certain requirements for students from say disadvantaged backgrounds. And I think when we blame an algorithm for something, when something goes wrong, like when uh, darker skin does not trigger like the automatic hand soap dispenser. I think we ignore the human component because humans program algorithms and that creeps into bias, creeps into an AI system. Right. One thing I wanted to sort of bring up here is I guess this, this exists in like many different levels across the stack. And I think especially when it comes to uh, people being practitioners of machine learning, um, I think a lot of the parts where algorithms or systems break down in the way that they behave differently from what our expectations are, are, are actually more than anything, just bad math and science. Um, and, and so what I mean by this is that like in statistics, um, 
which underpin a lot of the you know methods and, and technologies that we use for uh, machine learning and, and statistical modeling broadly. Um, when you create a certain model with a certain degree of confidence on how it can actually perform, uh, you know, inference or, or classification or, you know, regression and so on and so forth, like these are, you have to make certain underlying assumptions about your data. And I think that one of the really common ways in which this sort of like unknown assumption gets, gets missed is that we often assume that, you know, when we take a training set, um, that it is fully representative of all of the people that may end up using that. And this isn't necessarily always about malice or um, you know, trying to be a good or a bad person. Like obviously everyone wants to do good science, um, but sometimes it's it's you know assumptions that may not be met that you may have um, inadvertently not checked. Um, and, and so like I think we see this a lot with like a, a model that has a high accuracy in, in a training set and in research and production or research and development. And then it goes out and then we see that when it's applied to the broader class of users, um, there are people that would not have been represented. Now, you know, I, I think tying that back to the level of fairness of, you know, like, would I want an AI model to perform in the way that a person I would likely want to be friends with would behave? Um, I, I think Lizzie kind of hits the nail on the head that, you know, uh, fairness is a social construct, right? Like the reason why it's difficult for us to land on a system that behaves in such a way is because when we ask a hundred people, how would you want this to behave? The answer is, you're going to get a hundred different answers and you know you may get some sort of normal distribution of of there being some sort of central or centroid of like how people want it to broadly behave but i think a lot of the contention is around these edge cases right where people you know there isn't consensus and so um i like to say that you know ai and machine learning like the the, the modeling is is an extension of the assumptions that that someone injected into it so it's like if we as humans label data in a supervised learning scenario and we have some baseline of, of, you can call it bias, or you can, it's essentially statistical bias, um, you know, that gets transferred into the model. Now, um, you know, is that the fault of the algorithm? Or is that the fault of the person? And then further downstream, is, you know, is this a property that we need to be taking care of at the product level? Or is this a property we need to take care of at the algorithm level? Because I would argue that the algorithm is sort of like, non-opinionated, right? The algorithm does a test objectively, it's deterministic. If you build a product around that where you have assumptions and tests and, and live data that's not in line with what your intended sort of experiment was, well, this is where the mismatch starts to happen. I'm really curious what everyone thinks about that because I think that bad science and bad math is the root of a lot of this. And I know ML making it accessible is important, but then the trade-off is that it becomes even harder to maintain a quality bar that I think that everyone sort of really wants. I can interject, I think, um, if that's uh, cool. I often Josh, think yeah, when, when we talk about, uh, so I often think when we talk about fairness and bias, people look biased through the lens of fairness. Like, uh, uh, when we talk about fairness, then uh, as, as Lizzie said, there might be like different definitions. Fairness might be different for every individual. So one thing which is fair for one one person might be unfair for another. Uh, so this kind uh, this kind of uh, variance in the definition or this kind of different uh, these different types of fairness play a different role in different algorithms uh, with different algorithms or different modeling or different problems you are trying to solve. So uh, what do you guys think? Like uh, how can we generalize this fairness as a concept for a general AI problem? I think. 
I think a lot of this stuff so kind of goes... So there be oh, any, any possibility that... I was going to say, um, so if you think about like the, the panel discussion being like the ethics in like artificial intelligence, and you think about like, you know, the codes of ethics and, you know, how is it that, you know, moral thinkers, you know, create codes of ethics, whether or not they are moral or amoral. Um, and a lot of times, like if you think about like creating a system that is fair, you know, within like a normal distribution of fairness, you know, kind of going back to like this, you know, this concept that you can't really, you're not going to make something that makes everybody happy because we're all kind of polarized as people. Um, but it's like, can you encode, you know, that code of ethics into, you know, a, a thinking system? So, you know, basically, you know, to Nick's point, you know, the machine learning model is like a kid and you teach it whatever you're going to teach it if it's a bad habit or a good habit. And it's going to basically represent that with what it does in the future. So if you can encode it with a good code of ethics that people agree upon, um, then, you know, that's good enough. You know, that's, you know, if most people are happy with the way that it acts, then that's good. But also, if you do find, you know, you bring this thing into production, you have to continuously update like the models as well. If it's not fair, but it seemed fair, then you have to go back and get more data. And a lot of times I feel like that's only really passed over in the absence of a good ability to recreate that data and get that back again because of the cost. Um, but that's that's my two cents on like the code of ethics. And I don't know a good way to answer that because it's like, you know, it almost becomes government at that point where... You know, you need a quorum of people to agree upon things and then, then nothing <laughs> happens. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, Lizzie, sorry, go ahead if you wanted to say something. Uh, I was just wondering, like, at what point does an AI system gain, I guess, like, legal status to an extent? Like, who, for the question of ethics, who would take the blame if a self-driving car is in an accident? Like the programmers, the end users. Um, if there's a user override, what if the override goes wrong? And I think, like, because humans are biased and humans have their own, like, lack of morals, <laughs> humans are not perfect. That means that to an extent, AI systems will never be completely moral. Like, there'll always be some bias involved. Like, some group will be left out because maybe humans who program. An AI system leave out some underrepresented group from the data set, and then that data set is not recognized when it's finally in production. So you need to be cognizant of the input data, of course. Yeah, I, I think this is obviously like a very important topic, right? Um, like understanding sort of the implications for users by putting products out in the world that make automated decision making. What does the auditing, like where should fault lie? And, and I think that it's like, I think there should be some sort of value criterion by which we sort of assess how, how much these systems should be scrutinized, mainly what is the potential for impact, uh, mainly in the form of harm. Ideally, something that can be more good can also, uh, we can have a small blast radius for when it goes wrong. But for things like self-driving cars, obviously, I think that it sort of has has the ability to stand on both sides there um, simultaneously, right? You don't get one without the other. Um, but, but I think that like even more upstream for like who is the fault to blame in an accident where this may happen, um, or, you know, like there, there's so many levels of the, of the stack here, right? So um, I think there's like, you know, in a perfect scenario where we get clean data in, 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 in you know, live scenario and, and that comes in, you know, like if everything works as intended in terms of there being no sort of breakdown there, uh, who is to blame? But I think that another issue is sort of like, you know, when we think about, 
this the, like one example I'll bring up here is like the Uber self-driving car example, and I think it was Arizona or the southwestern U.S. Um, where you know a, a self-driving car technology is powering a vehicle on the road, and um, because of I guess you could call it maybe like the false sense of security, um, the systems were not able to detect someone during a in, in a given situation because it was night and it was a bend in the road. And uh, when we talk about fault. Fault is sort of something we recursively prescribe based on sort of all of the facts about a situation. And so like one could argue that, you know, in that scenario, that person shouldn't have been at that point in the road at that time. So is it the burden of the AI system to be able to work in that sort of situation? Um, now, I'll even go a step further and break down the AI, like the, the, the model from the production product because they're separate, right? Like you can ship a model as a part of a product because the product is intended and prescribed for a certain narrower band of use case than every single piece of data you could ever throw at it under the sun. Uh, this is how we design products, right? Uh, like no one would be upset if their hairdryer didn't work underwater. Uh, it's a good example of this. Um, and so it's like, when we talk about fault, it's like, you know, fault is both non-binary and that it's like may not exclusively be of one party, um, but also that it's, you know, like there are some accidents that may happen that I would argue could be no fault and are just expected parts of this normal distribution, right? Um, you know, it, it, I think it becomes very dicey when there's like a product that gets introduced that one person gets to opt into as like a consumer that can affect someone else who doesn't opt out or can't opt out. Um, but I think maybe that's, you know, a broader discussion, right? Like I think AI for sort of like self-serving purposes is, is one thing where we can make that sort of calculus for ourselves. Um, you know, what does everyone think about like a decision that someone else makes that can affect you on your behalf? I think I think a lot of those uh, the points there. Um, a lot of it bubbles up to like the umbrella of like decision intelligence and like decision making, um, just like in general as like a core theory. Um, so if you think about like decision theory and you know accountability, um, a lot of that kind of all bubbles back up to that. So like with decision intelligence, you're using a you know a, a machine learning system that derives a you know a probability for an answer. And then that decision has to basically be, you know, decided upon and acted upon. And a lot of times you think about like, okay, well, what does it take to act? So, you know, going back to the bend in the road, if the system acted, you know, with a high probability that there is nothing in the road, then it's really no different than like anybody else at fault. You know, you go down to drink your coffee, you look up, you've gotten an offender bender. Um, we're not, you know, running at 99.9999% accuracy as people. And these systems, you know, they can run at like maybe 90% accuracy, which is great because it takes a lot of that cognitive burden off of people when they're trying to drive. You know, if you're a little bit tired, then it will help you. But if you're so tired that you're falling asleep at the wheel, it's a different problem as well. Because we had that accident in California um, and, you know, not going into, you know, gritty details or anything else. You know, it was basically a Tesla that, you know, really kind of couldn't make a decision between if it needed to go left or right. So it just hit, hit the center and, you know, nothing's perfect. I think with a lot of this stuff, like we expect this perfection from these systems that, you know, really, I mean, work fairly well, you know, but it's all under, it's, you know, it's all uncertainty. So how well can something work when it's, you know, given a problem that's never seen before? It's like the unknown unknown. And, you know, adapting to that kind of change is always something that, you know, if you haven't been, been able to kind of, you know, foresee that problem, then the system doesn't know how to act. So then at that point, should it just stall, you know, what does it do? And I think that's like the harder problem is, you know, how, how do you train it to make a decision outside of the scope of what it's made decisions in before? 
and again when it comes to decision making there are like various implications for uh, various uh, various problems we have so uh, one of the paper i read uh, in which uh, uh, the guy was like uh, identifying wolves from the wolves from the images and the model was identifying wolves using the background so whenever uh, the background uh, uh, there's snow in the background it will identify it as a wolf so uh, this uh, like uh instead of going for the feature of the uh, features of the part we want to identify like we want to uh discriminate between cat and dog and instead of going for the uh features for the cat or dog it is going for the features for the background so this comes to this again comes to the part of explanatory and decision making and uh what kind of uh, how the ai model is basically thinking about the whole thing and how it is processing the data and what features it's extracting these are all things uh affect the what what end decision is there and how it's going to behave in the real life scenario i guess yeah one thing i want to bring up here is uh you know piggybacking uh off one of those previous points was uh is about like what is the ground truth for assessing you know like the effectiveness of ai i know that sounds like something that should be fairly objective but i think that when we see it play out even for a lot of people that are you know very statistical in nature or like the way that they are analytical, um, there's still some subjectivity here. Um, a, a bit of a trolley problem, I guess you could say, um, where, you know, you can come up with one, one sort of objective value criterion, which is minimizing number of accidents per uh, per number of miles driven in a car scenario, right? Where we say that like, okay, well in camp A, where we have human drivers and we have camp B, where we have, let's say self-driving cars or AI driven vehicles, um, in camp B, if there are fewer accidents per 100,000 miles or per mile driven, then this is objectively better. Um, now, you know, by that value criterion, that may co be correct. But I think that there's a lot of uneasiness because every accident is not made the same. Uh, and I don't mean this in that these accidents in sort of, uh, you know, either camp are more severe, but rather um, some of the accidents that happen uh, as edge cases in the AI scenario um, people start to feel uneasy or doubt some of the objectivity of these metrics because those accidents they perceive as things that they could have easily caught. Uh, examples of this being like the California sort of divider incident. Uh, just to shed a little more color on that, essentially, you know, there was a there's an on ramp, and then you know the the on ramp was just the light hit it a weird way, and and apparently the AI system wasn't able to detect it, and so instead of sort of properly merging, it kind of just went onto the like up to the divider. Um, and so when we as people think that, you know, like there's a lot of there's a lot of this perception of like, well, AI is supposed to be better. It, it's not necessarily that AI is better at everything all of the time and across the board. And simultaneously, that doesn't mean that AI is still not the better may not be the net uh, the net increase in sort of the value criterion that we do all agree on. I think a lot of the public discourse around this doesn't necessarily help that it's it's valuable to report on some of these you know, incidents or, or cases where, where AI can go wrong. But I think that when we really want to solve the same problem here, which is how do we make our roads safer? How do we, you know, automate decision-making, whether that's more uh, reliance on humans or more reliance on semi-automated systems or any sort of amount of human-in-the-loop scenario, um, I, I think that, like, the discussion oftentimes becomes very granular when, when uh, and, and it loses sight of sort of the, the broader... Uh, problem we're trying to solve where you don't really get sort of the benefit without some of these drawbacks. I think we're looking at what tasks are best suited to AI, like how depends on the task, how repetitive, how predictable, like definitely single domain, like Deep Blue can kill that chess, but like Deep Blue sucks at checkers, like, <laughs> and I think 
as you mentioned, Nick, like there's edge cases that you can't always plan for. And that's why to an extent, I think AI will not surpass humans because humans are better suited to handling edge cases, I think. There's um along that line, Lucy, like there's um there's an interesting book. Um I'm gonna basically blank right now on the name of it. Um I think it's called The Beautiful Species, and it's all about how creativity uh, affected humans' ability to really kind of evolve like through nature. So, you know, if you're a logical thinker, you're going, okay, well, I need to survive. What do I need to do to survive? Okay, I can go get food. I can do something else. But, you know, human at a certain point in evolution, we started, you know, playing music. We started, you know, coming up with our own languages. And, you know, this kind of notion of creativity um, is something that I think is like, it's interesting because like you're now kind of starting to see that you know, we can teach AI to draw, we can teach AI to paint a picture, uh, to compose a song, to play along like a melody, like in like garage band, you know, you can play a virtual band. Um, and a lot of that stuff is kind of interesting, but it's also kind of prescripted. So, you know, you can, it can play within the bounds of like the box that we put the AI into. And it's interesting, you think about, like, you know, um, if anyone's read like a bunch of like Ray Kurzweil or anything else, like you have this notion of like, at a certain point, like you have, you know, a conscious thinking system. And I think right now, like, we don't know what that's going to look like. And that's kind of also like the fear of AI. It's like, you know, at what point does it surpass okay. our human intelligence? And at what yeah. point, you know, are we now worried that we created a monster? And it's, you know, it's like how Frankenstein kind of, you know, approach to things. Uh, yeah. I don't know if anyone has anything else to say. about that. Yeah. Either. I mean, do you, do you, uh, do you think that AI in future will surpass human cognitive abilities at one point, or do you think that is like way ahead in the future? That was one more point on the, the similar lines that uh, when we are when we are talking about accuracy matrix, the accuracy we always compare the uh, compare the AI performance with human performance, and uh, the uh, when it comes to human performance, it's not always accurate. So we we consider that uh, considering that this AI model behaves like ninety three percent with uh, with ninety three percent accuracy. Uh, that's with respect to the human, uh, considering that human accuracy is 100%. And that's not always the case. So uh, we still don't have very, uh, very perfect uh, way to describe how accurate AI is because uh, there might be like human errors as well. So I was working on the similar problems like document segmentation problems in my, uh, with my earlier client. And uh, there were so many discussions around the same thing that uh, when when we uh, classify particular clause, like hum human classifies particular clause, they might miss some of the some of the data over there, and we are we are training our model with similar data. So our model has a very less accuracy when when compared to the uh, when it compared to the actual human accuracy. So those kind of issues are also there. Yeah. So. Uh exactly what you're describing is like sort of what is ground truth? What is the threshold for effectiveness of AI? I mean, I mentioned before where it's not, even if we can agree sort of as a society or as decision makers, that there's an objective criterion that we will assess humans versus an AI system. Even in instances where the objective criterion is met, there is still some ways to subjectively have to make that decision. Like in the, the car accident scenario, if it's deemed an easy accident, we may not want that to, to have avoided for humans. We may not want that. Um, even if it still reduces mileage uh, or, or accidents per unit mileage. Um, I think another thing to determine here is I think there's like a really big leap in like um, the scope of how we, as so there's two things, like there's the scope of how we leverage AI systems and how, how we let them play a role in our lives. And then there's also, um, well, okay, let's just start with that, right? So for example, I think there's a very large leap 
uh, even in like a self-driving car example, right? The AI system, if we look at it as a huge black box where like it's getting inputs from all of the road around it and its output is just decisions that it makes in terms of like steering and gas and braking, right? That's like assume a fully automated system. Now, I think that like the constituent parts of that AI system are like, you know, the one camera on the side that detects like how car, how predicts maybe how far a car may be from it. You know, I know infrared is, is not a prediction. It's like an exact thing for some like, you know, side side mirror detection. But, but essentially like you have a sort of meta AI system where you have like AI systems working to do perform individual detections on individual sort of entities, or you may have one single model that sort of handles everything. And I think that like we as humans are, are very sort of comfortable with the idea of like, well, use AI as a tool. I, I think very few people are sort of like trying to, to push back against that where it's like we can perform all these predictions and a lot of people are com are very comfortable at the end of the day if like humans a uh, human still sort of pushes the button to perform an action right uh and now you know like when we think about like well what problems do we want ai to really solve for us or be automated this sort of becomes a uh you know a big question right like there's uh in medicine another example is like i think there are a lot of examples where uh it's not necessarily that uh AI systems can supersede cognitive abilities of doctors, but rather that because of constraint, human constraints, like the amount of time you can spend looking at a given, you know, like a radiog radiological image, um, or, you know, just like the, the contrast or like how much coffee you had that day, right? Those inconsistencies happen in the normal human distribution. Those don't happen in the AI system. But this is all sort of like predicated on the fact that humans labeled those images, right? So it's like, when we talk about AI systems having like superhuman, super cognitive abilities, well, if the accuracy or the ability of them to actually perform inference is bottlenecked by the need for us to have labeled images or labeled data sets, then I sort of think like, it, it gates the conversation around like AGI, artificial general intelligence, sort of like becoming this looming specter. Uh, you know, do I think that at some indeterminate point in the future that we may, you know, as humans develop sort of better systems that can uh, make unsupervised learning really, really effective uh, or take like hybrid approach where it's like we seed it with some supervised learning and then it can have some unsupervised learning or reinforcement learning? Maybe. But I, I think that that like that is very far fetched. And I think the uh, far fetched in terms of like our current sort of timeline and what we were worried about right now. Um, from a policy perspective, like, should we jump the gun on that? I think that's another conversation. But I think do we as like people need to worry about this, like, being too far past the point of, of no return or anything? I think that's like, there's very little evidence to show of that, you know, either an R&D or a, or a product perspective, which typically trails the R&D side. So we did talk about the black box, right? So you, we see a lot of these cutting edge AI algorithms that operate today are like black boxes, right? Where the algorithms are definitely only capable to be understood by the computers. Um, do you have any opinions on how important it is to open up these black boxes further? I, I can I can start there. Um, so I, I think that one of the things that you'll you'll kind of find across the board. So you have all these frameworks, like whether it's like Scikit-Learn, it's MLlib and Spark, um, it's you know any of like the SageMaker stuff from Amazon. There's a lot of different ways to kind of use like AutoML, and then from that, a lot of people don't really understand how is it that they, you know, how is it that the model really came to the conclusions that it came to. And for a lot of that stuff, if you think about going back to the whole bias, uh, bias and fairness question, if you don't know exactly how it is that the model trained itself, you know, what are the features that it's encoded into its thinking? Uh, and there's really no way to really understand whether or not you're actually approaching it with any kind of fairness. 
So I think like there's, you know, on one hand, it's really quick to do, you know, auto ML, get to the point where something has been, you know, trained off of maybe, you know, someone else's system. You got like, you know, Google auto ML. If, you know, if you want to basically, you know, pick up from where, it, uh, where it's, you know, left off with image recognition, great. You can start off with like a base neural network. Um, but for a lot of stuff, like if you don't really understand how something works, then there's not really like a great way to know whether or not it's doing exactly what you want it to do. And I think that black box itself, like you see it like all over, you know, software, not just like in artificial intelligence, but if you, you know, if you feed something into the system and then something happens and then something comes back out, um, a lot of times, like I find, like, at least like for myself, like I really want to know what's going on and you want to dig further into it to be able to say, well, you know, I'm even just excited about how this is working. Um, and I think a lot of people really should, you know, break into that black, like the black box to find out why it is that something is doing what it's doing. Also to fix those potential problems, which make it, you know, an unethical system as well. Um, I do think it's most important to open up the black box to build trust and transparency so people do understand the training data, uh, the inputs, uh, what's making the AI system make a decision. Yeah, and I think this topic that, you know, can broadly be categorized as, uh, you know, like observability into, uh, or I'm blanking, but like explain the explainability in AI, that's that's sort of the, the umbrella term here. Um, and the class of things that I think are either like a research problem or like a engineering or an implementation problem, I think this one actually falls much more on the implementation side. Uh, and I'll explain sort of that, you know, hot take. Like when people think about AI systems being black boxes, I don't think there's any question as to the ability to understand how an algorithm works, right? Like the algorithm is math and it's deterministic. If you feed it the same set of inputs, it will always provide you the same set of outputs. And, and while that's very difficult to understand and people spend entire PhDs crafting and creating and, and, and making new um, you know, algorithms for us to use or neural network architectures, what have you, at the end of the day, you know, that algorithm, we understand how that algorithm behaves in terms of when we give it a set of inputs, what the set of outputs are. Now, the issue becomes much more of an implementation problem um, because we as humans think that like, okay, if I have 10 pictures of myself and I pass all 10 of those pictures in, I in my head think those are all 10 pictures of myself and I want them to be classified similarly, but I'm not understanding how the algorithm is interpreting those images and, and that's not because of the fault of the algorithm. That's kind of the fault of like, well, I was just promised that, you know, in this computer programming world that we live in, here's a function, it has inputs, it has outputs, and I expect it to behave sort of at this way. And the abstraction, it still exists, but like it breaks down when, when you know, you don't understand how the underlying tool sort of works. So I see this as like, there is a very large need for testing uh, software or, or, or um, it's a multifaceted problem, right? Like, you need to be able to have like common standards around data sets. I'm, I, I would really love to see in the coming future, things like some sort of, you know, W3C equivalent for like data sets on, on, on people worldwide, right? Like maybe that are these, uh, you know, unsort of fudgeable test sets that, that certain um, applications that perform comp, uh, tasks on common sort of subjects could be tested against to serve as a common benchmark. I think that like every company sort of having to make their own sort of data set for something that uh, is not differentiated is is not really a competitive advantage. It's more of just like undifferentiated heavy lifting. Like if there was a way to say like, hey, you know, we're creating a, a tool that is supposed to, um, you know, be able to effectively identify faces, let's say for like face ID or, you know, some equivalent sort of product, right? Like um, if, if there's, 
and, and there is, I think, regulation. There's a role for regulation here. And I think this is a great place where like something like a government agency could sort of step in and say, hey, well, here's a standard sort of test suite where you have to perform, uh, you know, and pass certain, you know, like uh, levels of accuracy or, or uh, coverage for, for these mutually agreed upon sort of things. Because otherwise, then it's like, it's just on each company to determine what is good enough in terms of like who it works for and who it doesn't. Uh, this, you know, again, looping back to Lizzie's point around like the unknown unknowns of like people that may not be represented in your data set. Um, so yeah, I see that that's much less of a research problem and that the algorithm is a black box and more of the system that's built on top of that algorithm um, being a black box because of the lack of tools. I think people all want their systems to work largely for everybody, you know, like I, not too much consensus uh, or lack of consensus there. It's just like the, the acquisition of data sets that are super like as close to the superset of, of like live data as possible is just really, really hard problem. And, and I think the tooling just isn't really there yet. You know, like you mentioned, um, you know, whether you use TensorFlow, Scikit-Learn, you know, using some of the SageMaker built-in algorithms, what have you. Um, you know, I, I just think the tooling has progressed very quickly. And and, and in, in terms of the uh, advanced testing suites, I'm sure there are some companies that have, you know, internal tools that they've built. But I think in terms of mass market and open source explainability tools, I, I just really don't think it's there yet. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's maturing. Um, and I think we'll get there. I think that these conversations are really important because that helps to sort of spur and motivate those projects to move forward. And actually, we need to get there because if you go through GDPR regulations, there's actually a regulation that if uh, if you uh, if, the, if there's any algorithmic decision or uh, any automated decision and it, it uh, it's uh, affecting any anyone's life or anyone's uh, anyone in any way, that person can actually uh ask the uh, ask the regulatory body for the explanation like how the how the decision is being made and how that model is implicating the decision so those kind of uh, expl uh explanations or those kind of uh things should come into picture for this as well anyone wants to add to the point i really Great. like oh, sorry. go ahead go ahead like I really like what you say about like standards, especially because I think computers, AI now have a lot of power. Like they're tasked with making decisions worth like millions, billions, lots of dollars, money. And they have like a high stake in human safety and health. And yet they're not, they still make mistakes. So I think we definitely need to understand where they're coming from and there should be a standard if we're going to trust their decision making. Yeah, and, and I think that like even in the scenario where an AI system may perform better on an objective metric to sort of tie this all back around, like humans have emotions, right? Uh, and, and so those sort of weigh in how we assess certain scenarios. I think humans broadly feel really bad when they're robbed of agency. And, and so like one of the things here is like, I think people feel a lot better at the end of the day um, if a human makes a mistake that causes a harm than if an AI system causes a mistake, because there's sort of this plausible deniability that like, well, if I was in that situation or like we could just change that person, you know, what they would do next time. Right. Like, and so like, I think this is a very sort of emotional, uh, some of these outcomes are extremely emotional, right? Like, especially if it comes down to, you know, harm to other, other people. Um, but I think that, you know, this is, you know, this exact point is why it's so hard to determine uh, a consistent set of ethics that is prescriptive across, you know, an entire population of people, uh, because everyone will have slightly different opinions here. Uh, and so it comes down to the question of like, well, you know, 
what are then the tasks that we allow AI to do? Uh, and I know this is an open-ended question. There is no real sort of answer for it. Uh, and I think that, you know, we as a society uh, globally will sort of ebb and flow and like maybe we'll allow, you know, in certain countries, they'll have different opinions, right? That this is, you know, yeah. how differences in culture and, and thoughts and beliefs. Um, and, and there'll be ebb and flow, right? There'll be points where maybe certain systems will 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 grant them more power and then we'll see the effects and we'll see like, is that a scenario we want or not want? And then maybe it'll flow back in the opposite direction. Um, I think that again, automated decision-making is something that we've had for a very long time here and, and not to sort of soapbox, but it's like, you know, uh, statistics, a lot of the underpinning of this have been used to make decisions and set things like costs and rates uh, for, for decades now, you know, if, if you have any form of insurance, this is, this is sort of this at work, right? Like your inputs as in the form of your personal data are, uh, you know, features for a model that determine how much you you should be charged for this company to break even to provide this service and then make some sort of profit on top of that. Um, and so I think this raises a larger question, especially with things like GDPR that you mentioned, which is, you know, uh, ownership of data and, and agency over data. Um, I, I think that like, this is not a new question with AI and ML, but I think it definitely brings it to the forefront. Um, I think it always feels kind of weird. Some like people are very torn on the things like personal advertising, right? Um, you know, some people love that they get served recommendations for things that they want to buy. Other people feel like offended, right? So this is where a, even one application of AI with the same set of data or the same features from two different people can have wildly different responses. Um, so. Yeah, it's it, it's it's there's a lot to consider, uh, lots and lots to discuss. <laughs> Definitely. So uh, we all agree that you know it it comes down to the uh, the quality of the data that you have that will ensure what is the end result. But uh, if we come towards privacy, right? Privacy of data. For example, if we talk about uh, what what is happening in healthcare. So if you if we want to build an AI system that is able to provide best course of action. Um, under any uncertainty, it needs that kind of data to be able to process it, right? So in such cases, um, what is the general concerns? Like, would you be uh, give up your privacy in order to allow these future systems to work better? What What would be your opinions about that? I have I have a, a, a fairly strong opinion with that. Um, so uh, recently, I guess recently is like a everything's kind of relative. Um, so like two or three years ago, um, my stepfather had a heart attack. Um, he survived because um, they called an ambulance. The ambulance basically gave him like, um, it's like an under the tongue drug that basically puts you almost into a coma. And then he went to the hospital. Had they made the decision to just drive to the hospital because this might not have been a big deal, he would have died. Um, but the other thing too, is that like, you think about like, you know, more and more like, you know, not even just like the malpractice, but you think about like people try their best under like a really kind of, you know, a heavy pressure situation. You know, it's like, oh, I think I'm having a stroke. I'm going to convince myself I'm not, I'm not going to really call like, the hospital. And then, you know, bad things happen. Same things happen when people have heart attacks. You know, is it a panic attack? Is it a heart attack? You know, I'll probably just survive. This is fine. I'll, you know, I'll just go to bed early or something like that. I think like in the ability, you know, in the, in, the, you know, not even like the, the far future, like you think about like the Apple watch, like automatically calling, you know, the hospital for emergency services when it sees, you know, EKG values kind of change. Um, like all of that stuff is kind of here now, whether or not it actually works or not is a different thing. But if you think about like, you know, does somebody have an allergy? How hard is it for, you know, uh, first responders to get information about a person um, versus just interviewing the only person who's around when that person, you know, gets into the ambulance? If the person's already passed out, they're going to try their best. They're going to administer like one, one of two medicines that they have on board 
and they're going to hope for the best. Um, and for a lot of that stuff, like if you have the ability to basically, you know, scan somehow, you know, I don't know if it's chips and people, however that goes in the future, but if you have the ability to basically scan, identify a person, pull up that medical record, pull up all kind of history of things that went right and went wrong. Then like, you know, the ability for the automated system to think about how to best prescribe personal care, I think is something that's very helpful, especially like, you know, you think about right now, you know, with coronavirus, like, you know, is there something that could help somebody based on, you know, prior medical, you know, I don't have a good word for it, but, you know, just prior medical history, could they make the right decision? Like, is this person, you know, is a certain drug going to, you know, give this person an asthmatic reaction and then they're going to get on a ventilator and things are going to go bad? I think like right now, you know, everything's kind of, you know, it's a kind of scary world we were living in, but, you know, to take part of that human emotion out. So we were talking before about like, you know, emotive response and things like that. If you have a system that just is making decisions based on like, you know, prior courses of action, history and probability, most likely that would be better under a high pressure situation than a person who's, you know, feeding off of emotion during like a stressful time. Um, that's my, my two cents there. And also the other part too, I, I would give up privacy because I've already really given up privacy um, if it's better for my overall outcome. And I think that's like the silver lining of HIPAA as well as, you know, my data can be shared as long as the course of action improves my potential healthcare. And that's like the scary silver lining also with HIPAA. But that's that's that. But again, that brings us to the earlier part, then who will be accountable for if there's any misbehaving for the whole thing? Like, if anything goes wrong, who will be accountable for the whole thing? I, I think I think in that case, um, it goes back to like the legal system at that point too, because you think about like yeah. it's, you know, a doctor under uncertainty making the best decision that they can, it goes wrong and a family sues. Um, you know, that doctor is going to, you know, use their prior history of, you know, solving the same kind of problems or they're going to do like a quick on the fly interview of the other doctors, like, you know, within, uh, you know, the ER, I guess, at that point. Um, at that point, it's like, you know, go into surgery, don't go into surgery. And, you know, how fast can we potentially fix this problem? I think that there's, you know, I think doctors get like the bad, like a bad rap for a lot of the stuff when they're trying like their best. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like everybody, you know, when it's when it's life or death, people are always emotionally involved in that and invested in like the outcome. And when it doesn't go the way that they want it to, you know, it's always we're going to blame somebody because I, you know, I want action. And I think that the the hard part there is that, you know, it really is like we don't we don't all live forever and, you know, life happens. And I think it's really hard to figure out who is, you know, who is on, you know, who's on the receiving end of things when they don't go right. Um, you know, was it the wrong decision? And, you know, I think that that even if it's a computer doing it and there's an you know incorrect outcome, like in the Uber use case, um, you know, it tried its best, you know, and what you know, how do we how do we quantify that? You know, trying our best. Yeah, uh, exactly. A lot. It's really hard to take the human emotion out of it. I mean, I know I've tried to, to preach the whole idea of like let's agree on a value criterion, but I think that you know you just named a scenario where it's like, well, if it tugs at the heartstrings and that's what's that's what's important to you, we need to find ways to codify these subjective things into things that could be more objective, and that's a hard problem. But I think it's something that everyone is trying to work towards uh, in the long run. Uh, I think one thing that, that is really important to me, um, sort of going back to the original question is, is like, 
control like data agency. I said this before, like, would do I feel comfortable opting in to allow, you know, like systems to use my personal data? And I think that like the concern is is oftentimes like, yeah, well, there's the idea of like, well, an AI system can go wrong. But if I've already opted in as a assume I'm, you know, an educated consumer, I've made sort of that that pros versus con weighing. And I've, I've agreed that, like, I want to partake in this sort of in this trade off. Right. Um, I think the issue becomes uh, there's there's two downstream issues. First is that like when my data gets vended to other providers or other you know tools without my consent directly, and and you know consent you can you can phrase that a lot of ways. I don't think implicit consent or or like tacit consent works. Uh, explicit opt in, right? Like if I'm not explicitly opted into having my data vended to other sources, that's something I don't like. Um, uh, secondarily. Uh, should I choose to, uh, should the situation for the pros and cons um, change, like the product changes, for example, or there's more information about it, or maybe just my opinions change, even if the product has not changed, I want to have the ability to be able to cut off vending my data to that vendor and remove any sort of semblance maybe uh, of my data that they have. Um, uh, these are two things that I think like there's still a lot in the way of legislation and even just public discourse, right? Like uh, in, in the same example of insurance, I like I'm fairly certain there's a lot of like data that gets uh, sort of bundled into you know your your insurance company for various sorts of insurances that you may have throughout your life that is still able to be reprocured and 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 redistributed to other agencies, right? So even separate from AI, I think the concept of data agency is something that um, is more fundamental. Uh, and I think GDPR in Europe uh, is is takes a lot of steps in the right direction here in, in terms of starting consumer first and then working up to build systems on top of that. Uh, and I know that that was a very stark sort of change for for a lot of you know uh, you know people like us like application developers. Uh, you know we have to drastically alter the way in which we uh, may build certain applications regardless of whether we had any ill intent, right? Um, but sometimes it's that level of deliberateness to build a system that is truly you know people first or or, or grants that agency by default. Um, is the way I would phrase it. I guess like government regulated transparency or uh, auditing the vendor for constant, constantly for the data uh, they have, how they are using it, or uh, what, what, like uh, the, the constant auditing might help in this purpose. Like uh, we can regulate the things with the auditing and transparency. I think we need a code of conduct. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, just like to say what the company or the AI system will use the data for and that they will not use it for malicious purposes uh, and outlining. <laughs> yeah. Right there, when you say won't use it for malicious purposes, like that's the entire issue, right? Like yeah. that is a completely, uh, I mean, like, I don't like using the word, the phrase weasel word, because it implies that someone is deliberately trying to use something that, pre that presents as one thing, but to go the other way. But like, you know, no one would agree, no one would disagree that we shouldn't use things for bad purposes, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone in a board meeting would be like, oh, nope, yeah, sorry, cross that one off, right? Uh, the question becomes that like, you know, for a company, something that could be good for them that they perceive as not detrimental to their user, I could have very different feelings about how that infringes on privacy rights or that makes me feel very uncomfortable, right? And, and that becomes like, at what level do we sort of impose these, these, these limitations, right? Uh, I think that like, when it comes to like government level things, GDPR is so radical because it's this very prescriptive sort of guidance at a very national level. Whereas typically you could sort of find like, all right, well, if there's this whole field of topics that we sort of want to talk about, uh, if we can all agree on like a small part of them, maybe we implement those at the largest level, like the national level. And then as you go down more granular, like state and local, 
um, or like individual sects of business and, and verticals, uh, we start to get more and more prescriptive guidance. Um, and, and that's why I think GDPR again was was so sort of monumental. Like it just took this very firm stance at such a such a wide stage um, that you know it, it becomes tough. And then it becomes like, well, what are the things sort of the furthest downstream that that we can't get consensus on? And, and basically, no regulation would would you know have some sort of uh, wide ranging support, right? Um, and I think that like we're very far in many ways around the conversation of AI from being able to implement things uh, like that uh, or like implement policy, I think in a way that, that people really understand. I think that a lot of the conversation still is very surface level and there, there's, uh, you know, not a lot in the way of um, being able to really place the pros with the cons. I think sometimes they get, they get sort of presented separate from one another. And I think that a lot of education is just a really large part of being able to first make decisions and have advocacies for plans that people are going to want to get behind or understand fully. And even GDPR doesn't mention uh, the word AI anywhere. So uh, they define it as automatic decision or algorithmic decision. So, uh, that, uh, again, like there's a lot of things to be done before we uh, reach at a level where AI is very prominent, and it's being uh, and and there's a there's a need of need to regulate things around AI. So we are still a bit far from that, but I don't know uh, if we are very far from that situation. Maybe uh, it's it will be case in uh, four, five, or six years. Yeah, I think. I think also, I mean, if you think about the uh, like kind of like the other ramifications of like, you know, data governance, GDPR, like, you know, HIPAA, all these other kind of standards that are, you know, out for, you know, potentially, potentially the, you know, the benefit of, you know, the end user. Um, a lot of them, like it was interesting, like a lot of them talk like, so GDPR was one of the first ones that was talking about just data protection. You know, how is it that you protect that, you know, end user's data? A lot of them don't talk necessarily more about the privacy of that data, given that, you know, your data, your behavior can be encoded as like, you know, a unique identifier. It's not me, but like, this is the same kind of problem that started like back in the day when Apple introduced like the IDFA. So it's, here's your ID for ad, it's unique per application. And then you basically just have, you know, an aggregator that can then link that back to the IP address of the phone. You've now found that person again. So like for a lot of these cases, you think about like almost like, you know, it's like the, the black market of data or whatever else. And, you know, that untrust, it's like, even if the, you know, even if an entity that has the data is trying to do the right thing. Um, there's always, you know, the notion of like, you know, potentially bad actors in the system. We're able to kind of really identify that user and then use it for, you know, advertising. Now you think about that, like, you know, in a future where a lot more of your data is now like online, um, you know, it can be collected by entities outside of, you know, your own knowledge of that. Um, how does that, you know, benefit, you know, the company that, you know, could, you know, could profit from that. So you think about, you know, um, you know, using your medical data to, you know, uh, you know, enhance, you know, I don't know, your fitness, you know, your fitness routines, or whatever else. That's good. Not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's just helping you to basically become, you know, better, you know, have, have your own kind of personalized training or something else. But then it's like, you know, the, you know, the other side of that is using, you know, the collective behavior of you as a person to, you know, identify what should be, you know, shown to you at the right time of day so that you purchase something or that, you know, you are, you know, you vote for, you know, say a president, like just because something kind of keeps on flashing. It's like that whole, like, you know, the native advertising that is kind of layered in and targeted directly towards you. Like that's like the, you know, that's for me, it's like, that's what, you know, the end result of what happens when things go bad um, with this kind of like, you know, the un, I guess, um, 
I don't know, un, unaudited, you know, un, you know, non-transparent, you know, view of your your own data, and you know, you hope that people do the right thing. You hope that companies do the right thing, and you know, I don't know, that code of ethics, even if it's there, I think it's one of those things that people kind of they try their best to skirt around it um, if they can, just because it might actually be easier, you know, to ask for forgiveness later than to, you know, go and use something to, you know, get a, a cheap win or something else. Um, I don't know. That's that's my thoughts. Cool. So we did talk about uh, how it can be developed in future, but let's talk about something that is already here. Um, that is something like deep fake technology that we see, right? So we've seen a lot of improvements with the face and uh, voice uh, generation uh, algorithms, right? So they can be used. These methods are known. We have seen practical uses of these methods being abused, right? So what is your thought? Should we stop researching or should we uh, think of how we are researching or implementing these improvements? And what is what is your take uh, around that? So I have a, I wouldn't call it a radical take, but one that I think that uh, is not talked about very wild, widely, uh, which is that like a lot of things come down to like what we accept as as true and objective sources of data going forward will change with, with deep fakes. And I don't think that it necessarily comes down to the burden of like regulation to, to alter this. I think that like this will be a fundamental shift in what we consider to be legitimate and objective data. So in the same way that like when Photoshop or, or image manipulation came around, uh, it wasn't sort of like on the government to come down and, and like crack down on people Photoshopping things, right? Now, you know, if the intent is that you are in fact, like fraudulently copying a document, well, that's fraud, right? That's covered under existing sort of uh, of laws. Uh, and so it's like, I see that this is not all that different with, with, with deep fakes. And now, you know, there are clearly very many sort of new attack vectors for doctoring video and doctoring audio. Um, but I think in the same way that there's this healthy level of skepticism and there's, there's ways that we look at things and are like, hey, that's a little too good to be true. Or, you know, maybe this doesn't look quite right. Or maybe there's always the possibility that's Photoshopped. And even if I have no way to, to determine that, uh, you know, the fact that we accept that it can exist is something that's that's an important sort of like understanding. Um, and I see this coming with deepfakes too. Uh, I, I see that like, you know, with GANs, generative, generative adversarial networks, the underlying technology here, um, you know, you, you get scenarios like deepfakes in the same exact world where they can be used to generate beautiful pieces of media uh, that can change the way we make movies, uh, songs and, and audio and, and paintings and applying style transfer and powering applications we love to use, right? So it comes down to then, you know, like, so it's not just like, hey, this technology is net good or net bad. It's like, well, there's a much like many things that technology can be used in many different ways. Um, I think the deep fakes inherently are not even bad, right? Like, like a deep fake is, is almost prescribing intent to uh, like, uh, or a negative intent to a use of using GANs for this format, right? Like, I don't know, would you call like a movie that's generated with GANs a deep fake? I, I don't know, right? And so it's like, then it comes down to like, well, do we assess, is it about intent uh, or impact? And I think that a lot of processes in our legal systems sort of already exist to, to assess these sort of things. Um, and, and I think that already we're seeing a whole wide spectrum, right? So like, we're gonna get the good with the bad uh, and the next steps that we wanna take are sort of up to us. But I think that things like blanket bans uh, or even a lot on the way of like new and additional policy and legislation may not be the right answer. It again goes to ethics of humans. So 
Sorry, what was that? Uh, internet cut out a little bit. Uh, I was saying it again. Again, goes to ethics of humans, like uh, how uh, how morally uh, we treat the whole thing, like how we uh, treat the whole thing defines the it defines if it's bad or not. So, okay. Yeah. I also think, I mean, to to the other point too, like um, I think that if you think about you know a, a deep fake being used like as an artistic expression. Um, I know that I can't remember the name of the, the platform, but there is a there's a company that's basically created the ability to create uh, video game scenes just by talking and saying, OK, I want a scene that has, you know, a forest with a lake and it's mm -hmm. now going to you know project a forest and a lake. And for some of these things, you know, that's not that's not bad. You know, the computer understands, you know, what a forest is, what a lake is. It can generate like a beautiful scene that's, you know, capturing like, a specific emotion or whatever else. And that's kind of cool. Like, uh, I think it was Howard Cohen. I can't remember if that's the right name. So back in like the 80s at MIT, uh, Howard Cohen was working on creating like AI that could paint pictures. Um, and it was basically like, you know, the ability for it to, you know, back in the 80s, it's funny because like we didn't really have, you know, you know, the ability to basically like use ImageNet or anything else to, you know, train anything. But, you know, in MIT, they were working on like their AI lab and they're trying to figure out how to, you know, how can you get a system to dream? Um, can you say, you know, hey, you know, what did you think about yesterday? You know, what is it that, that you dreamt about? And it's you know going to now paint a picture of what it was thinking about, and I think that's kind of an interesting you know expression of artificial intelligence in like a different you know different complete aspect. It's not you know it's not a bad thing. It's not being used you know for you know this kind of you know this dark you know seedy underworld, um, but it's actually being used for you know that creative expression. And I think that that's you know the the positive side of like what's happening with like the deep fake in general. It's you're teaching a system how to recognize real things in the real world and then create a bunch of you know copies of that and that could be used for training future systems in a, in a positive way as well anyone wants to add to that before we move on to the next topic i think this could be a good segue to looking at like how tech can be used for bad but it's also can be used for good yeah 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 so definitely i mean that's where i was also going towards like we have talked about a lot of concerns we've talked a lot about a lot of ethics related to ai but then we all agree that ai has a lot of it has a vast potential to improve and enrich our lives right so just wanted to give a last round to all of you to talk about your silver linings any positive note that we can end this uh, discussion on i'll i guess i'll start so um I think like, you know, when we talk about ethics, like ethics exist on, on both the good and the bad, right? Like if you are giving advantages to people or uh, people are receiving benefits, it's also the conversation of ethics is around expanding that to as many people as possible, right? And this is why the conversation around democratizing AI is, is something that you hear a lot about because in the same way that, you know, people could be harmed, if you're giving advantages to subsets of people, then this could in a way be considered inequitable. Um, and, and so, you know, like, I'm really happy that there has been a large amount of democratization and opening of these tool sets to a larger number of, amount of people. You know, I think a large part of the conversation around ethics is uh, actually predicated on the fact that these tools have become available to more and more and more people. And so like, I'd much rather have the conversation of like, how do we, you know, make sure that people can use these tools effectively than like, how do we open up the tools that, so that more people can access them? Uh, I'm really happy that, you know, like a lot of people are able to take, uh, you know, these frameworks like TensorFlow, Scikit-Learn and so on, PyTorch, so on and so forth, and actually get production systems up and running at their companies without needing a PhD 
PhD in, in, you know, like artificial intelligence. And, you know, if this was a conversation we were having maybe, you know, five, six years ago or a decade ago, uh, this, this would be a pipe dream, I'd argue. Um, the, the, the needs from an infrastructure and a DevOps perspective and then a software engineering perspective and then a mathematical background, uh, you know, before NumPy and all of these libraries that did those low level bit flips for us, um, you know, it, it would be a very different discussion. I'm really happy to see that there are so many companies that are able to actually take things like regression or classification um, and, and actually automate uh, to very high degrees of accuracy with very low, uh, you know, sort of like levels of contentiousness and bias that we talk about here in these like very large greenfield sorts of conversations. Uh, and AI is is powering a lot of, you know, under the hood, a lot of these lower level problems and, and, and businesses see a lot of really, really real and tangible gains from that without having to sort of like perform this really big set of mental math around like, is this good or is this bad or is this worthwhile to do? Um, so seeing the democratization from the tooling and the education and all of that uh, is something that I've been very happy to see. Does anybody want to kick it off next or? Something I'm excited for is I guess the accessibility aspect. When I took human computer interaction in college, my professor had one child who uh, had a disability and he was very excited for the concept of voice tech and making tools that uh, more people could use. And I think this is a good jumpstart to a conversation on, I guess, diversifying and getting people of different backgrounds to build these tools so more people can be included and so we can build for everyone so everyone can use tools like AI and also um, a cool project I saw on GitHub or somewhere recently was writing code via voice and like, um, what was it called? I forget the company, but definitely need people of more different backgrounds. And I kind of like the idea of uh, having humanities with tech. And I think that's where ethics and AI definitely leads into. You want to, I, can, I can kick it off next. Um, yes, so yes. this is uh, so like uh, well, Lizzie and I both work at Twilio. Uh, one of our customers is the, uh, it's the crisis text helpline. Um, so one of the cool things with them is that they also use AI to actually help people like not commit suicide. So people who are on the fence, um, they have basically taken a look at, you know, basically as dark as it sounds, they've taken a look at what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past. So they can actually kind of prescribe like, you know, how do you react in the situation when this is, you know, basically the phrases and the text leading up to a specific uh, situation, you know, how do you, you know, how do you take, you know, how do you walk somebody back from like the edge? And I think that that's like a really kind of good use of AI is being able to, you know, help influence a decision um, when, you know, people feel like there's, you know, there's no hope left. And I think for a lot of stuff, like you think about, you know, again, going, I don't want to make things dark, but going back to the coronavirus, there's a lot of people who are, you know, uh, hopeless, feeling isolated, lonely, like it's not a good time like for a lot of mental health right now. So I feel like AI is really, you know, it's kind of going to help. I mean, it's helping now, but it's also going to help in the future of, you know, how do you, you know, how do you have someone to talk to that you know is not going to judge you? And, you know, you think about like good chatbots or, you know, people in the mix who now have, you know, you know, an, an, additional, an additional decision maker who's helping them make the right call um, so that they don't have to feel, you know, 100% responsible if things don't go, you know, the right way. And it's, you know, a lot of times people just want somebody else to say something to. And I think that this is, you know, this is there's pros and cons here. You also see this like in robotics, too, where it's like, you know, 
uh, I forget if it was like Jovi or some of these other, like, you know, it's like the robots you can have at home, which are, you know, you know, keeping people company. And it's just like a cute little thing that's going to, you know, walk around the house and you don't feel, you know, you don't feel as isolated, um, you know, bring some kind of joy. And I think that, you know, there is an opportunity to create more joyful experiences um, and, you know, not necessarily just use, you know, AI and like, you know, machine learning for evil. So there is always that positive, positive side of that as well. Definitely. So one of the thing I can think of right now is like uh, from last two months, I, I have seen many things coming around fake news and uh, I worked around this thing a bit and then I uh, uh, like delivered two or three talks as well. So when I read, read a lot about it, so I, I found out that uh, there, there's no human view system which can really fight this thing. So when you when you talk about fake news, it can be generated by uh, GANs as well. So uh, there are there are a lot of sources for this, but we we don't we, uh, we as a, we as a human we were, uh, can't really fight the fight the whole thing. So AI can play, play a really great role uh, when it comes to fighting fighting this kind of things like combating fake news and uh, so some uh, some some kind of like very really, uh, very really good real world issues can be solved using AI very easily and it can really help as a when it when it uh, coexisting with the human. It can really uh, we can really form a good pair and work around so many so many great problems and solve uh, many great issues around around lot of general things or uh, real world issues. Nice, nice, cool. So if there's no more thoughts, uh, I would like to thank you, Scott, Nick, uh, Lizzie, and Jay uh, for some great takeaways. One final yeah. thing I will add. Uh, sure. So uh, recently, I came across this conversation where. Uh, that that ended in the in on this thought that if yeah. we if we as an algorithm developer or if you if we as an application developer uh, want to develop something and then we should think about how this uh, uh, problem or how how this model can impact people in general life or what what will be risk on the human lives about it so this this a short thought before developing something can help us solve the many ethical issues we think around AI I guess. Right. Great. So <laughs> thank you again. Uh, thanks, Scott, Nick, uh, Lizzie, Jayesh, uh, for some great takeaways across the different aspects of the ethics in AI. And I'm sure this will kick off a lot more discussions among our viewers and uh, we'll be able to build better AI systems in the future. So thank you again. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank All right, you. Bye. Bye.